we get some time here to give our attention to the words of Scripture. Um, You are not passive in this time, even though you are sitting and listening, but think active, active listener, trying to understand and believe and feel the import of this text. Uh, One other thing, I am not doing sign language up here when I preach. I had someone ask me if I'm doing sign language while I'm preaching. I just, it's just a little bit extra energy that's got to come out somewhere so it comes out of these hands, all right? But there's no secret codes in any of this. Just focus in on the words. All right, let me set the context of what we're doing this summer. You can move to this next slide and it'll help to set the stage. That one, good, heroes. Uh, We're going to be working through the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews all summer long. If you've been around since September, we've been grinding through the whole biblical book of Hebrews. It took us 10 months to do 10 chapters. We've heard the same thing over and over and over again. The writer of this letter is begging his readers, and by extension you and me, to not give up on Jesus, to not bail out. We would say it like this, he is calling us to keep the faith. And he has gotten out his toolbox and he has put to work every tool that he has to help you keep the faith. He has dropped gospel glories on you, the hugeness of Jesus. Why would you ever leave him if this is who he is? He has dropped some very intense warnings on you. Apostasy is real and awful. Don't go there. He has called you to spend time with each other. He has called you to call to mind your first season of faith. And he has told you to have heroes. Here's how he said this. This was the verse. Be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So we preached a whole sermon on this in the fall. and We told you that one of God's means of grace to you to help you hang in there is that you would have the right heroes rightly embraced. Now, in chapter 11, here's what he does for you to take the mystery out of it. He starts to name for you the heroes. Enoch, Abraham, Moses, Sarah, Rahab, Joshua, Jacob, Joseph, Noah, He's going to point you to them, and he's going to say, do you see these guys? Do you see these gals? They did it. They lived by faith, and you can do it too. All summer long, we're going to go through these stories with you one by one. All right, today we get what seems to be the least heroic hero in the whole chapter. His name is Enoch. Enoch is Hebrew for mailman because he is the mailman of the book of Hebrews. His life seems, no offense if you're a mailman or a mailwoman, his his life seems to be as unheroic as it gets. His whole story is told in four sentences. That's it, his whole life, four sentences. And there isn't one big, huge, specific thing that he did. He just believed God every day 
for hundreds of years, which we'll see in a second. He woke up every day and he said, today, I'm all in with God. Steady obedience, same direction, really long time, that's it. In fact, you might think that it's a mistake that Enoch ended up in the Heroic Faith Hall of Fame. Like Bon Jovi being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How many people think he belongs in there? Be careful right now. All right, Karen, how many people are like, that's a joke, right? There's no way Bon Jovi is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How many songs did he have? What, two? And it's the same song, right? Living on a Prayer and uh, what was the other one? Same chorus, Shots of the Heart. It's the same chorus. Enoch's like Bon Jovi, right? What is he doing in the, in the Hebrews Hall of Fame? Something's wrong here. Until we get to this wild mic drop moment that happens at the end of his life. And we realize that God defines hero very differently than you or I tend to do. The most simple steady of lives, gets graced with the biggest, baddest, boldest of rewards in the book. All right, let's pray and see if we can see that together. Father, be gracious to us. Give us not only minds to understand, but give us hearts to believe. Everything changes if you can get in our hearts and cause us to believe rightly. So hear my prayer for me, my brothers, my sisters, that you would do that right now by your spirit. Amen. All right, before we hit Enoch, let's talk about this word heroes so that you know what we do mean and what we don't mean by that word this summer. Um, As expected, like with almost everything else, your Bostonian culture has found a way to jack up a proper biblical understanding of the word heroes. So on the one hand, over here, we have managed to redefine the word hero not as someone who accomplishes something awesome or does something amazing with their life, but someone who makes much of our life. All right, I don't know if you ever heard these lyrics before, but check these out. You can see them on both sides. It must have been cold there in my shadow. To never have sunlight on your face, you were content to let me shine. You always walked a step behind, so I was the one with all the glory. Did you ever know that you're my hero? Only a narcissistic, myopic diva could ever come up with the lyrics of that song. Bette Midler, there she is. And only in a narcissistic, myopic, diva culture could we say, this is what a hero is. It is someone who makes much of me. That's heroic. That is not the biblical idea of hero. Or we swing way over to the other side, and we end up with this. Everybody know what these are? Superheroes. So this is the Marvel Universe, we call it, or is it the DC Universe? 
you can't get those two mixed up with like real comic book keeps. They get so angry. My buddy John Elia used to live across the street, and I, I messed up a character that was in the DC universe, and I said it was in the Marvel universe, and he was totally ready to go to blows over that. All right, whatever universe you prefer, the Marvel universe, the DC universe, Astro City, whatever it is, we love this hero stuff. Super-powered, superhuman, superheroes. Now, this idea, this thing has its place. Um, who didn't grow up with a favorite superhero? Everybody did, right? If I could just run like the Flash. If I could just shoot ice out of my wrists like the uh, guy in the Fantastic Four. Or if I could swim like Aquaman. If I just looked awesome in a leotard with a whip and two little bracelets and I could do some crazy stuff, Wonder Woman, I could be a superhero too. What's the problem with that? No, you can't. The example of a superhero is not attainable. It's a fantasy. No matter how many times you watch Black Panther or Wolverine, you still don't have a vibranium suit and you still don't have admantanium claws. You still have an old Red Sox shirt. You still work in a cubicle. Nothing has changed for you. What Scripture presents to us is a very different understanding of the word heroes. That's why we put up a picture that said superheroes but had the super crossed out. Weak Imperfect people, just like you, just like me. No x-ray vision, no super hammer, no magical outfits. The only thing that they had was a confidence in God. That was it. They took him at his word. They banked their lives that he was God and his word was true and he was worth following. If we had to talk in terms of superpowers, here's how we would say it. They all had the same superpower, one superpower. It was the superpower called faith. Faith. In fact, in every story all summer long, we're going to see the same two words show up in every one of these texts over and over and over again. Here's your hero. Here's what they got done. And here's how. By faith. By faith. The first time that those words show up is in the very first words of chapter 11 where the Spirit defines for us what he means by faith. So here it is. This is the key verse to begin it. Now, faith is the assurance of the things hoped for, the substance of the things not seen. You feel that? Now, this is not an exhaustive definition of faith. This is the definition that fits the context. A group of people like you and me who are ready to hang up this whole follow Jesus thing. And we needed to be encouraged to endure, to be patient, to hold on to the end. And this is the definition that fits that context. What is the superpower or the weapon or the thing that enables the Christian to follow God all the way to the end? Faith is what we call that thing. He says it in two different ways. Faith is the assurance that what God promised will become a reality. 
I know it. Faith is the conviction that what I can't see yet is going to happen. It's going to be a reality. I know it. Another translation of these verses that I really love is, faith is the substance of the things hoped for, the evidence of the things not seen. In other words, yes, Thor had his hammer, and the Green Lantern had his super ring, and Captain America's got his shield. All we bring to the table is that we trust God. And that trust is like a thing called faith, I believe you, so I'm going to keep fighting. Everybody has read The Lord of the Rings, right? Notice I said read, not watched. All right, in the second book, The Two Towers, there's this massive battle that happens, but their superstar wizard, Gandalf, is not there. Before he leaves, he says these words to them. Look to my coming at the first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east, and I will be there. And then he's gone. And then all the powers of hell, of Mordor, descend upon Helm's Deep, right? And you've got Aragorn with his sword, and you've got Legolas with his bow and arrow, and you've got little Gimli with his big beard and his axe, and they are fighting through the darkest of nights. But they hold on. They keep swinging. They keep battling until the sunrise. And what happens at the sunrise? Down from the hill comes Gandalf with all his boys, and they join into the battle, and they look and they go, Gandalf, I knew it. What really makes those three heroes in that story It's not really the sword. It's not really the bow and arrow. It's not really the axe. It was their confidence that if they just kept the faith and kept the fight, Gandalf would be true to his word and there would be victory. That's the story of every story of every saint, including you and me. Faith is what we bring to the table. Faith is what gets us there. This is why we are always asking you in the life of our church, in every situation, every decision, every conversation almost that I have with you, I am saying to you, okay, how are you believing God right now? How are you believing the gospel in this? Or sometimes, hey, how are you not believing the gospel in this? Why do we ask each other that question? Because it is by believing, by faith, that we live the Christian life. That's all that a gospel hero is. Someone who goes, but God, and I believe him, and I'm all in with him all the way down. All right, Enoch was one of these heroes. Here's Enoch's whole life story, the whole thing, in just four verses. Read it with me. When Enoch had lived 65 years... He fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah, 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. That's it. That's the hero's life story. 
Uh, don't get weirded out about the ages, okay? We can talk about that later if you want to, but there's this reality of the ancients lived a really long time. The effects of sin had not hit the world or our bodies in the same way that it has now. And we can look at some answers about that question. So just think a whole life, a wicked long time. Don't panic about the 365 years. So here's the story. Enoch got married and he had a son. And something pronounced happened at the birth of this first child, of this boy. And he named the boy Methuselah. All right, I know you seven mile people love the crazy Bible names, but I would stay away from this one just in love for your child. Methuselah. The name means spear or javelin or something that gets shot out and hits its target. And the name was a word from the Lord to Enoch and his wife, a prophecy that God's judgment on the awful, sinful world before Noah was coming. And it was going to come when this boy who was just born died. Anybody ever see the movie Speed? Yeah? All right. So if you didn't, here's the story. This unbelievable Hall of Fame actor named Keanu Reeves. <laughs> oh man, you should see this guy carry a part. The whole movie is just him. Sandra Bullock, Dennis Hopper. There's this bus in Los Angeles, and there's a bomb on the bus. And the bus gets, uh, the bomb gets, uh, not triggered, what's the word? Uh, activated, engaged when the bus starts its route that day. And when the bus stops moving at the end of its route, what happens? Kaboom. So the whole movie is Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock trying to figure out how to keep this bus going. Because if this bus stops, it's over. Methuselah was like that bus. The day that he was born, God said, I am holy and I will not tolerate this wickedness forever my justice is going to flood down, literally flood down. And when Methuselah dies is when I will act in justice. Just a side note, who lived longer than anyone in your Bible? It's Methuselah, right? What does that tell us about the mercy, the long-suffering, the patience of God? His justice never rose quickly, he waits as long as he can for repentance to come. So Enoch has this son. He hears this truth about God. And what does he do with the truth that he hears? He believes it. It's an act of faith to name his son Javelin. And every day for the rest of his life, he wakes up and he believes God is holy. Sin is not a joke. I'm going to walk with him, honor him, obey him. We're told that two different times, Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God, obeyed him, loved him, had affections for him, trusted him, followed him every step of every day. And very, very important, he did this in an unbelievably godless and wicked culture. So... This wasn't like obeying Jesus in the Bible Belt, right? They literally give you fast food cups and there's Bible verses on the bottom. 
I went down to the south. I got off the plane. Within 15 minutes, I ate at Chick-fil-A. I heard Jesus music on the radio, and the lady who checked me into the hotel said, God bless you during your stay. Now, that doesn't mean it's like easy to obey Jesus because we're all sinners, but it's a little different down there than, you know, try that at Whole Foods. He did not live in 1500s Geneva, right? When they would ring the bell and everybody in the city would know, oh, it's time to go to church and hear the gospel. He did not walk with God in Puritan, Massachusetts Bay Colony, where the elders of your church were the the governors of, of the commonwealth. He did this in a culture that was just as bad as, maybe worse than, modern-day Massachusetts. It was the culture that the Lord flooded with the flood. Against the grain of that culture, one that defied God and denied God, he took God seriously. He believed and he walked with him all the way to the end. And God was so pleased with this steady faith that he graced Enoch with this wild end-of-life reward. Here's what it says in Genesis. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So awesome and strange. If you read the eight biographies before and Enoch, how do they all end? What's the last three words in every one of those stories? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. But Enoch is, and he was not, for God took him. It is this wild twist that the writer to the Hebrews picks up on. And here's how he says it. All right. By faith. You see it? Get used to it. There's the power. It's going to be there all summer long. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Okay, in the text of your Bible, it doesn't have one, two, three, four, five. I put that in there to love you, to help you not miss the drum that the writer is beating. You know, something awesome, crazy happens. People tell you about it like 15 different times. So like Evan told me six times already today, Micah hit a double and got two RBIs. Did you know that Micah hit a double and got two RBIs? Yeah. Did you know my brother hit a double and he got two RBIs? You know how we do that, right? My dad does this with my kids. So Matt plays rugby. Have you watched the rugby game? You have no idea what's going on. It's just like a mat. It's basically tackle football with no pads. But there's this cool thing in the game where if you kick the ball and then you run and you tap it before the other team does, you get the points. It's the one rule that I learned about rugby. So Matt was playing Cambridge Ringe in Latin. Actually, at Harvard, they got this rugby field that only has rugby lines. It's like a rugby field. That's it. And he kicked the ball up. But then he was so aggressive and so fast that he beat the whole other team down, dove and touched the rugby ball before they did, and the team scored. (laughs) He told me like 17 times, do you know what your son did? No, no, do you know what your son did? You're not going to believe this. You know what your son did? I'm like, I saw the video. We have iPads now and Google Drive. Yes, 
Do you feel that? When do we do that? When something just takes your breath away. That's the spirit of these words. How many times did he tell us what happened in the last scene of Enoch's life? Five times in two verses. Enoch went from life to life without passing through death. That is an unbelievable grace, a breathtaking reward. All right, let's talk about this for a second. So barring Jesus coming back, all of us are going to have to face death. And it is never a fun prospect. So Christianly thinking, we know that death is an enemy. It is an intruder. It is something that has been defeated through the gospel and was never supposed to be a part of our story. Even though Jesus has overcome death, it continues to be a reality in our lives, and it is a horrible reality. Now, we try to manage death and domesticate it and pretend it's not so bad. All different cultures do this in different ways, so if you study the Victorians, you will see that they sentimentalized death. Uh, How do we do it in our day? Bostonian culture deals with the horrors of death by living in denial about death. We remove ourselves from it as far as we can get. We leave the care of dying people to who? To professionals. Generally speaking, we don't die at home anymore. That's supposed to happen at a hospital over there. Out of sight, out of mind. Or we speculate about death as if we could domesticate it. So I don't know if you did this when you were a teenager, but did you ever sit around with your friends and be like, hey, if you had to go, how do you want to go? Did anybody ever have that conversation when you were young and death was scary, so you were trying to wrap your mind around it? Was that just me and my friends? All right. (laughs) There would be the as fast as possible camp. Is that the camp that you're in? Like, just give me a heart attack, give me a stroke, a carjacking, boom, boom. I'm gone. I didn't feel anything. That's how I want to go. There is the blaze of glory camp. So some of my friends were like, no way, man. I want to go down in flames doing something awesome. So for me, it would be like, you know, 2020 point game. We're going straight to 21. Give me the ball on the block. Drop step left. Fake to the right. Step under. Lay it in with my left hand off the glass. And then I'm gone right there, and you can celebrate that moment forever. Maybe a roller coaster that just goes off the tracks, and you're just like, ah, boom. Or, like, I want burglars coming into my house, and, you know, I don't own a gun, but a friend of mine told me, you have to own a gun for that situation. And I was like, what kind of gun? He was like, shotgun, get a shotgun. It's got the spray, it'll just get the whole room, pow. I want to go down in a blaze of glory, saving my family. Leonidas, right? His last thing, he's got 40 arrows in him. That's how I want to go. Or the more mature kids in the conversation would be like, I just want to die at home in my bed with my wife and my family around me. What are we trying to do in all of those conversations? To pretend that we have some control over death. 
that we can dictate its terms, that it is not the horror that it really is. But if you spend any time with an ER nurse, right? So talk to Suzanne. If you spend any time with police officers, I've got some good friends who are cops. If you talk with Amy's dad, who's a paramedic in Seattle, you know what they will tell you? No, no, man, I've been there. There is nothing romantic or manageable or lighthearted about death. The three most awful scenes of the last 10 years of my life, I know them without even thinking. Do you know what the three of them are? They're easy. And there's been some bad stuff the last 10 years in our life. But the three, immediately the worst ones. Grace's brother died from stomach cancer. Grace's mom died from pancreatic cancer. Grace's father died from leukemia. I can still smell, see, hear, being in those homes, in those hospital rooms, watching their bodies give way to death. Easily the worst three things that we have gone through in the last 10 years of our life. Now, as Christians, we know death is nothing to fear. To live is Christ, to die is gain in a true way. But the actual dying is awful. Do you feel that? Only if you feel that will these words of Scripture now become beautiful to you. How cool would it be if you could somehow pass from this life to the next life with Jesus without having to pass through that horrible door of death. That would be such a gift. I've watched people die. Some of us are watching people die right now. We know how much of a gift it would have been if they could have just gone from prime of life to life. Enoch walked with God from this life into the next. This text says that God was so pleased with the steady, quiet, everyday, unflinching, countercultural, by faith obedience of this man that God rewarded him with this awesome gift. The point here is not to obsess over the details, right? I don't know if you have one of those like very concrete minds like I have, so right away I'm like, wait a minute. Did he just vanish? Was his family looking for him? Uh, put on the, the magic ring, you know, where did he go? Was there a missing persons report? Did they have milk cartons in those days? And was Enoch on one for like a long time? Is his picture still up at the supermarket? How did this work? The point is not to ask that question of the text. The point is to feel the glory of this and the surprise of it. Do you feel the surprise? Come on, if anybody in your Bible was going to be given this gift, this grace of bypassing death, you figure it would be somebody with more than a four-sentence biography. Wouldn't it be Moses, like that whole story of supernaturalness? Wouldn't it be Joshua leading the people, the walls of Jericho fall? Wouldn't it be Esther risking her life to come before the king? Wouldn't it be Sarah like Tim preached awesomely on last time, right? She's way past the age of having a baby, but she gives herself to her husband believing that she'll conceive, and she does give that woman's faith a giant star. 
But Enoch? Yes. God reserved this reward for the quiet, steady, long obedience of Enoch. Here's how our boy Calvin says it. We ought to especially consider the reason why God in so unusual a manner removed Enoch from the earth. The event was remarkable. And so all may know how dear he was to God. Impiety and sin and all kinds of corruption prevailed everywhere during his life. If he died just like other men, it wouldn't have occurred to anyone that he was preserved from the prevailing contagion by God's providence. But as he was taken away without dying, the hand of heaven, removing him as it were from the fire, was manifested. It was not then an ordinary honor with which God favored him. I love that. Do you feel that? Enoch lives what you would call an ordinary life of obedience, but he receives an extraordinary reward. Here's the big idea. Feel this with me. God doesn't miss our everyday obedience. If this first hero does not infuse dignity into your everyday obedience, I don't know what does. I cannot think of a way for God to more clearly communicate to you that obedience in the trenches of your life delights his soul than for him to give the most flashy reward to the least flashy story in the book. God may be calling you to some radical obedience. If he does, let's do it. Say yes to it. But most of us, on most of the days of our lives, our obedience is not going to be Hollywood-level stuff. Nobody throws a parade for you when you wake up and say, today, I love you. I trust you. I am all in. So today, help me walk in obedience to you. Today, by faith, I am not freaking out on my kids, even though they deserve it. And I was going to get a test done to see if these are still children or demons, because I'm not sure which it is right now. By faith, no one's going to see this. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to love these image bearers. That was Enoch's life. Not enough to write about, no headline, steady, long obedience. By faith, I am going to give again this week, even though I won't be able to buy the new grill that I want for the summer or the beach chairs, because I love you, and I trust you, and I know that you've called me to give, and I'm going to believe you. By faith. By faith. I'm actually going to pause right now. No one's going to see it. But I'm going to pray for and show kindness to my neighbor who is a loser and I want to burn their house down. But I trust you. 
And I know that to walk with you means to love my neighbor. And I'm all in. By faith, I'm not aborting this baby. By faith. By faith, I'm not filing for divorce today. By faith. By faith, I'm honoring my father even though he doesn't deserve it because I trust you and you call me to do it. By faith, I'm cleaning up the trash that the raccoons tore apart because I know my husband hates to do it and you call me to love this man. Whatever you call me to do, I'm doing it today by faith. God does not miss all of those obediences. He rewards them. We are called to go for them together. All right. Now let's land the plane with Christ because going for that is not a self-help sermon. It is a gospel-centered call to obedience, which means you go live by faith in the strength that Jesus provides. Jesus is the greater Enoch. Do you know what I mean by that? So there's this very cool connection in the Genesis story. It says that Enoch was the seventh from Adam, the seventh generation from Adam. In your Bible, the number seven means perfection. That's it. That's how it was supposed to be. Seven. And so we are supposed to read his story and be like, hey, what was supposed to happen with Adam actually happened with Enoch. The walking with God, the trusting God, the obeying God every single day by faith and moving from life to life with no death, whose story was that supposed to be? Supposed to be Adam's story. And in the seventh generation, we see this interruption Hey, hey, see Enoch? He has done what Adam was called to do. And so, in a sense, Enoch recovers what Adam lost. But Jesus is even better. Jesus does not recover what Adam lost by going from life to life. Jesus recovers what Adam lost by going from life to through death to life by conquering death so that we might have life. Jesus moved from life through death to life so that you can receive that grace and live for it and say, me too. The good kind of me too. Jesus went from life through death to life. I am all in with Jesus. I'm going to live by faith so I might pass through death into life. He will not miss your everyday obedience. In fact, he died so that obedience might move you into eternal life. Let's go for that by faith together. All right, I'm going to pray for you, and I want you to think of your everyday life. Where are the places that I am believing the gospel? awesome. Where are the places that I'm doing my own thing, I'm loving the world, and I'm not believing the gospel? 
and let's set our hearts to say, hey, Enoch was no super-duper hero. He had faith. I have it too. This can be my story too. Let's pray for that together. Father, thank that you have given us models that we can aspire to. Enoch wasn't perfect, but he believed you, and that changed everything. I pray for my brothers and my sisters in this room, and I pray that we would all walk by faith with you, that we would have the confidence in you to understand and see that our everyday obedience, it pleases your soul. You delight in it. We don't have to change the world to move you to receive your grace. I pray that the simple story of our church would be just a bunch of ordinary, regular Bostonian people who believed God and went all in on all that he commands, requires, provides. Would you make it so? Would you make it so, I pray. Amen. All right, thanks for listening through to that. We're going to now.